Today's sermon text is Luke 4, 14 through 44. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 859. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. 
But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let me pray for us as we look now at these stories in Luke chapter 4. Let's, let's pray. Lord, your word has authority and power. We pray that even now, by your spirit, you would use it for the glory of your name and the good of your people and the lifting up of Jesus among all nations. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For the past two and a half centuries, the the very first act that a president of the United States does immediately after being sworn in is address his fellow Americans in what is an inaugural speech. This is a chance to hear like the first kind of tone that this president wants to set for the nation. It's it's a time where he can say, this is the type of president I want to be for you. And some of these these speeches are inspiring some of the most kind of historical uh, remnants of American speech writing, good speech writing that we have. So uh, I heard Luke, for some reason, reciting uh, the second inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln the other day. I don't know how he knows that. I don't go around reciting it. He doesn't know all of it, so don't go ask him. But he knows the first of it, at least. With malice toward none, with charity towards all, we seek to bind up the nation's wounds. That's an attempt near the end of the Civil War saying, instead of going and getting vengeance, we're going to try to work together. It was uh, inspiring. People look back to that and say that's the type of presidency he was trying to put into place. And other inaugural speeches have not gone so well. So the, the one that is pointed out, if you do a Google search, worst inaugural speech, there is a consensus. And it's a president you may not... Remember, it's a guy named William Henry Harrison. I look at my notes to make sure I have his name right. His inaugural speech was an hour and 45 minutes in a snowstorm about ancient Rome and the lessons that America could learn from ancient Rome. And if that sounds exciting to you, blessings on you, and you can write a different article about him. But, but it, it was long-winded. It was boring for most people there. And most historians, at least at the time, would say it actually killed the president. Like he caught pneumonia and died 31 days later. I don't know if there's a moral there for preaching long sermons or anything. I just It's just the truth of what's here in uh, history. Those inaugural speeches are meant to be places where they can set the good of what's coming to rally people around. And how you see people respond to those speeches tells you a lot about the type of reception that this president will have. 
And this morning, we come to this speech that we hear Jesus give. This is his inaugural speech. He's already said some words, but this is really the beginning of his ministry. And we can ask ourselves, what kind of ministry should we expect throughout this book of Luke? What kind of ministry should we expect from Jesus? And very importantly for us, how are people going to react to that? When people hear what he has come to do, see what he is doing, what will they do in response? And what will we do in response? So the last time we were in Luke a few weeks ago, we looked at the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4. We saw the baptism of Jesus, his genealogy, and the temptation. These are all events leading to showing that he is the son of God. It's like basic training. Uh, It's showing to those around them This is my beloved son, perfect, obedient, ready to stand in the place of sinners. And now he is going into his ministry. So verses 14 and 15 are like a hinge between this basic training and into the ministry of Jesus. So verses 14, Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, if you uh, back up and ask why we're doing all of these stories in one thing, just look at the end of chapter 4. And you'll see this, is, this whole chapter, or kind of this part of Jesus' ministry, is bracketed by that phrase. Teaching and preaching in their synagogues. So verse 44, he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is just a Luke showing us, here's the type of ministry that Jesus was doing in Galilee. And we're going to kind of see that play out over the next several chapters, all the way to chapter 9, verse 50. So up front, Luke wants to give us a taste of Jesus' ministry. And very importantly, he wants to show us, again, how people react to his ministry. I said, and you heard read a few different stories in this passage. We're going to go back, and I want to show how all of them are kind of working together to show this point. We will, though, spend most of our time on this first story, verses 16 through 30. And the reason for that is because I think Luke is actually setting this forward as an introduction for Jesus' ministry throughout the entire gospel. And I would say even into his sequel in the book of Acts, that you're going to see a pattern come forward in this story that you can go read the rest of this gospel and you'll see it play out over and over and over again. Uh, So think about this like putting together a photo album. Okay, so we we don't... uh, Photo albums for you small children are places where you put actual pictures in a book so that you can flip through and see when they ha- things happened. But Laura and I have a photo album of our, our wedding day, and on the cover of the album is a picture of us, I should have checked, doing either walking down the aisle or at our reception looking lovingly in each other's eyes. It's like a picture that captures the day as a whole. That wasn't the first thing that happened on our wedding day. Right, We didn't wake up and immediately do that, but that picture is on the front because it's, it shows kind of the importance of the day. Once you kind of turn in the pages, you get the chronology of what happened throughout the day. And that's really what Luke is doing here. He's taking this story and putting it up front as a, this is the, the, uh, the introduction to what his ministry looks like. Uh, and just so you know that, I'm, I'm not making that up. Look back in your Bible. Look at verse, at chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus is talking to his hometown in Nazareth. And he says, you, you will doubtless say, do the kinds of miraculous works that you did in Capernaum. But this is the first story we see of Jesus here, right? Has he been to Capernaum? Well, yes, historically, yes. But 
in the book of Luke, no. Luke has taken this out and plopped it down up front because he wants you to say, this is the rest of the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. This is the pattern that is going to play out. Luke is not a bad historian. He's actually a really good storyteller. He's actually setting forward for us how we can see this happen throughout the gospel and into the book of Acts. So let's, we're going to walk through this story and see this set the stage for Jesus' ministry. And we'll start there in verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Remember, this is his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, up to this point in the story, there's really nothing all that spectacular about what's what's happening there. Jesus is in his hometown. It says it's his custom to be in the synagogue. So it's no surprise that you find him there on a Sabbath day. And this Sabbath service is going Kind of how every Sabbath service goes. It'd be like coming to church in lots of ways. They sing some of the Psalms together. We actually sang a Psalm this morning in Psalm 23. They recite a prayer aloud. They recite the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And now it's time for the reading of the scripture and the sermon. And Jesus gets up and does that. It's a flow that they're familiar with. Now there's probably some excitement because this is... This is like the kid who grew up in the youth group coming back to give the sermon. And so everybody's thrilled to see them there. And they've heard about what he's done in Nazareth. So there's some extra anticipation. And that's probably why at verse 20, again, Luke is a masterful storyteller. It says Jesus rolled the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They're ready. What's Jesus going to say? What's he going to do? And that's where we get the punch. Verse 21, he began to say to them, Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And with that, Jesus does two things. First, he preached a shorter sermon than you will likely ever hear at Philadelphia Baptist Church. But second... And most importantly, he claims that this scripture is pointing to him. He's making a claim that no other preacher could have made or ever will be able to make. If you come here, if you hear me or Kyle or David preach, uh, you will, or Corey, Corey preaches too. If you hear us preach, you will hear oftentimes us saying, This is pointing forward to a day when God will bring about his good promises. Have hope. Look to that day. You're going to hear us say, look back at what God has done. He's fulfilled what he said he would do. But who on earth would have the gall to stand up and say, in your hearing, this very day, this word has been fulfilled. Uh, maybe you've, you've heard C.S. Lewis. He has kind of this provocative, famously provocative way of putting the options available to us. What do, what do we make of a guy who makes a claim like that? C.S. Lewis would say, well, he could be a liar. 
like actually trying to deceive people. He could be a lunatic who's just out of his mind and, and saying stuff that he's just making up. Or he could be the Lord. He could be the one who actually is doing what he says he will do. And here, this is the claim that Jesus is making. He is claiming that he is the true prophet of the Most High God. He is the anointed one by the Spirit, and he is coming to bring deliverance to God's people. That's what he's saying when he quotes Isaiah 61 and says, Me, today. And that's a kind of authoritative teaching that absolutely floors people, that astonishes them. Uh, Even look down in verse 31 of his ministry in Capernaum. This is what he was doing in Capernaum earlier. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. They, They have like their local scribes. They have other rabbis around. But this man, he teaches with a kind of power that they have never heard before. And not only does he teach with power, but he actually backs that up with a demonstration of power. Just keep reading in Capernaum, verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. This is not just like a newly minted seminary graduate, somebody who's getting to kind of cut his teeth on his first few sermons. He's like listening to Moses or Elijah. He's somebody who comes with power and authority. So he preaches with this authoritative manner that makes him, everybody looks and says, this is the prophet should look and say, this is the true prophet. The spirit is on him. He is proclaiming with power, but he also brings a message that only the true prophet of the most high God could bring. Uh, If you look in your Bible at verse 18, you can see where he gets the scroll of Isaiah. And there should be a little footnote pointing down to where he finds this part of Isaiah. It's from Isaiah 61, which we heard read earlier in our service. Uh, If you, if you can, Keep a finger in Luke 4 and turn over to Isaiah 61. I just want to show what, I think, why this is so powerful, what Jesus is saying. And remember just kind of the context of what's happening in Isaiah. Uh, This is what we've seen so much of in the Old Testament core training class. The book of Isaiah is, is pointing out, it's the prophet Isaiah looking at the people and saying, your sin and idolatry has risen to such a level, it is so odious you have turned against me and i am sending you away into exile that's like the first 39 chapters of isaiah in a sentence your sin is leading to exile it's coming for you but then in chapter 40 the message shifts and the lord turns and says exile is coming but it's not the final word it's not the last thing that you are going to hear and that's why isaiah 61 is so thrilling because God's promised salvation, the comfort that they say is coming, starts to leave some of this cloudy hope for good things to come, and it starts to take on concrete kind of dimensions. It starts to look like real, true hope. And this is how a lot of Bible verses work. This, I think, works for us. So if I say something like, for God so loved the world, you would say that he, oh yeah, keep going. 
That's right. We got a full quote of John 3.16 over here, right? I, I say a little part, and your mind just kind of keeps rolling with it. We could keep doing that for other things, uh, for other Bible verses that you say, I'm going to say just a part of it. And if you have grown up in church, if you know lots of Bible, it just kind of spouts off what's coming. And so for these people sitting in the synagogue, listening to Isaiah 61, they hear this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And they could probably finish out a lot of the rest of what's to come. And they, they see Jesus saying, I am the one. I'm the one who's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But they likely also think down to things like verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Is this the guy? Is this the guy who's going to take us from Roman captivity and from living in borrowed houses, from not having a land? Is he going to make us a people to build up all this ruin? Then you skip down even to like verse 9 where we see it's not just Israel has to look forward to this. Verse 9 says, their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Verse 11, as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. In saying Isaiah 61, Jesus is saying here, I am bringing redemption for God's people and it is coming out to all the world. Jesus' first sermon is, I'm that guy. I am the spirit anointed prophet. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And how do the people then respond to this message? Well, turn back to Luke 4 and look at the first part of verse 22. They hear this message and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They, they look at one another and they admire. They admire so much of what Jesus says. That, that homegrown preacher boy has really gracious words. Uh, the, the first church I ever belonged to was a small country church. I grew up there. I was baptized there. My dad painted the mural behind the baptistry where I was painted. I had uh, Sunday school teachers for 11 years straight who almost who went through me in Sunday school there. And when, when I came back to Birmingham from Chicago and I finished my, my seminary education, I was, I was privileged and I got to preach there. It was a joy. And there was a woman who, uh, this is a country saying, and it was a country church, who had known me since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, who came up to me after the, the sermon and said, Ryan, which is how you say my name in Leeds, Ryan, that was a great, you did a good job. You've got a good preaching voice, and that's what we need. We need people with good preaching voices. And I love that lady, just so you know. I'm not making fun of her. I love, I won't say her name. I don't think she would listen to this recording, but just in case. I love that lady. She meant that really well. But that's, that's a little bit of what's happening here. Gracious words. Admire, admiration. Good job. Jesus, you did good. Good talk. Uh, look at the following story. You see some of the same, this kind of response in verses 36 and 37. The response is, they were all amazed. They said to another, what is this word? 
with authority and power. He commands the unclean spirits. They come out. Reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. They, they look at his authority and his power and say, man, powerful word, preacher. Good authority. But I'm afraid the admiration was only skin deep. Because in verse 22, they say that they marvel at their gracious words. But then what do they actually say amongst themselves in verse 22? They said, isn't this Joseph's son? Uh, Isn't that the carpenter boy from just down the road? And, And you can hear that and think, well, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Though Jesus will tell us how to interpret that and what follows. But essentially, they they really like the sermon. It sounds good. They're used to sermons, and maybe that's a powerful one. But they really don't like the Savior. They they won't trust the preacher. They think that what he says sounds good and powerful, but they don't want to turn to him. And that's why Jesus calls them out in verse 23. He says to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. If you are who you say you are, show it. If you're more than a carpenter, then do more than make tables. Heal some people, cast out some demons. And while that, that may sound like a reasonable kind of request on the surface, I think it's also put here because it has echoes of what happened in the last time we were in Luke. Who was the last person to tell Jesus, hey, if you're the son of God, do this. It's the devil. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from this temple. And Jesus said to Satan, to the devil, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And these Nazarenes here have taken that very role. If you're more than the, the carpenter's boy, do something. Prove it. And instead of saying, yeah, let me just pop out a quick miracle here, Jesus sees and knows the disbelief, the unbelief in their hearts, and he names it. Verse 24, he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up, Three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. When Jesus names the disbelief in the hearts of those sitting around him at the synagogue, their admiration immediately turns to anger as they literally go and try to kill Jesus. And this is part of the irony that we see happening in this story. What has Jesus told us about a true prophet? In verse 24, he says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And Jesus shows again that he is the true prophet rejected in his hometown. Those who are closest to him, those who should have seen him and received him best, they instead cast him out and reject him. And then Jesus tells us what rejected prophets do. 
That's part of what that story, those little stories of Elijah and Elisha did. Rejected prophets do what they did. They leave the place where we expect their ministries to succeed, and they go to those on the outside. So now look over to verse 38. Jesus has been doing this synagogue ministry at Capernaum, at Nazareth, and in verse 38, he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she began, she rose and began to serve them. Jesus is the true prophet. And he's followed in the footsteps of the rejected prophets, Elijah and Elisha. He came to the synagogue, not just any synagogue, the synagogue that he grew up in, the place where they should have received him gladly. And he was cast out, so he walks out the doors of synagogue and does the work of ministry to those who are on the outside. And for all the ways that people respond to Jesus in this story, we see several characters respond to Jesus. We finally get something that looks like discipleship, that looks like following Jesus and not just admiring Jesus. Right? The crowds in Nazareth, they really liked those gracious words. They marveled until he looked at them and said something hard and called out their disbelief and then they hated him. In, in Capernaum, they love the authority. They rightly, they rightly see. He has authority and power. That's good to recognize it. But recognizing power and authority is not the same thing as belief, as trust. And oddly enough, maybe the, one of the more surprising things in this story is that there are some characters who know Jesus' identity really well. And who get it spot on. But it is not the characters that you expect. Just look down at the story in verses 40 and 41. It echoes kind of what we read earlier in verse 33. When the sun was setting, all those who, had any, who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, You are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. In all this story, who is it who confesses rightly Jesus' identity? It's the demons. They're clearly, though, not the disciples. There's more. Friends, this is so important. Kids, this is so important. There is more to following Jesus than knowing the right answer to who he is. No, the, the model of discipleship, the one who actually sees Jesus for who he is and who responds rightly is Simon's mother-in-law. Right? She does not merely marvel. She doesn't just admire. She doesn't just say, I know who you are. No, she rises and begins to serve. She is the true disciple in this chapter. And at the end of chapter 4, we see that this this right here is Jesus' mission. He, he's not done making disciples. Right, verse 42, when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people of Capernaum, they sought him and came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving them. It's nice to have somebody who casts out demons, who heals diseases in your midst. But verse 43, he said to them, I must, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent 
for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The regular synagogue attenders want him to stay, but Jesus says, I can't be detained. I have a mission, and my mission is not just working miracles. It's not just expelling demons. It's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God that has come. It has come, the reign of God has come in the person of Jesus. And he says, my mission is not just to stay here, but to go to say that in every place. God actually uses the expulsion of Jesus from the synagogue here to push him out into all the other places. And that's a story that will resonate throughout the rest of Luke and even into the book of Acts. So here, Jesus' inaugural speech and his ministry and the way people respond in this passage, this is a preview of coming attractions. And the question is left open here. Right? We've seen how people respond in this story. There's, there's some who follow, who serve, who are disciples. There's some who outright reject. There's some who just say, I like that. That's, that's kind of cool. I, I don't have to do much with it, but I, I enjoy the message. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to see over and over. And we can just ask this question. If you're reading ahead, ask over and over. How is this story going to end? How is this person or this group going to respond to Jesus? And that's the question that is the main point, the main question from this passage that goes to you today as well. How will you respond What will you do with Jesus, the true prophet? And I have two kind of applications, two ways of thinking about this that I want to think on a little bit further. And one is for almost all of us in this room. Uh, If you're an insider, this text should humble us. If you're an insider, this text should be a right caution. Something to bring us in humility. And by by insider, that word, I mean people like us who are, like myself even, who are here Sunday after Sunday. We know the liturgy. We tolerate the preaching. We are familiar with Jesus. But knowing things about Jesus, even being familiar with him, is not discipleship. Uh, There are many people. In churches across our nation and the world today who are there week in and week out. Uh, People who may check the box where we say they're part of us, evangelical, Christian, whatever you want to on a census. Who are religious and who are family focused, who are morally upstanding, who come from generations of church going folks. But if you came and said, you friend, you need God's grace laugh and say, me? I don't think you're, I think you've got the wrong person. It's often the religious insiders, and this is true throughout the Gospels and even today, often the religious insiders are those who need God's mercy and grace most, and who yet are often the least aware of their need. This is how commentator James Edwards puts it. The unsettling truth of this story is that the greatest danger to the way of God in this world is posed by those who are closest to it. Jesus is rejected not in Sodom and Gomorrah, but in Nazareth. 
He is betrayed not by the devil, but by one of the twelve whom he chose. He is crucified not in pagan Rome, but in the heart of Israel at Jerusalem. The rejection of Jesus repeats the rejection of God in the history of Israel, whose ultimate adversary was not Baal worship or foreign nations, but my own people who are bent on turning from me, declares the Lord. Whereas John 1.11 puts it, Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, kids and youth, I know we're at the end of a sermon, and I want to give a brief encouragement, because I am really encouraged by the ways that you listen, by the way that you respond to questions, that I don't have any questions for you. But I I love that you come and listen, but I want you to be especially aware of this. There are many of, of you who are growing up in homes that love the Lord and that want you to love the Lord. And we should be grateful for that. Many of you will know more, like if you go through church here at 18, you will probably know more about the Lord than many of us know in our entire lifetime. That's a gift. That's something not to despise. That's something to be thankful for. But the caution is that's something also to be not to be proud of, but be humble before the Lord. Just as we saw, you saw the demons, the people who said, I know the right answer. But they were not the ones who were following Jesus here. Don't get confused that being familiar, that getting the right answer about Jesus, who he is, is everything. We need to know him. We want to follow him. And there may be some hard things that you hear. Adults, there may be some hard things that you hear from the lips of Jesus, even as we go through the book of Luke. Be careful not to look at him and say, I don't think that's like the Jesus that I like. I like the gracious words. I don't want the hard part. We want to be corrected and correctable in the word of God and to the Lord who comes to us. And one one last thing on this point that I want to mention briefly. Uh, If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, I'm going to assume that you want to continue following Jesus. I think that's a safe assumption. You want to continue to the end of your life walking faithfully with the Lord. You don't want to reject or walk away from him. And here's the good place where God gives us tools to help us in that. It's not, this is not a call just like grab on tight, hold on for the best. And one of the things that I want to say the Lord gives us is one another. One of the ways that we maintain faithfulness with the Lord throughout our lives is having brothers and sisters who are committed to us so that when we say one day, I am struggling, I am thinking about walking away, this is a hard saying and I'm not sure what to do with it, that you have brothers and sisters who will say, let me take your hand and let's keep walking. So I want to even commend you. If you're here and you're, uh, if you're a member of this church, press in. Get to know other people. Make sure that you are, uh, you are available, that you say, somebody knows your life well enough to be able to say, I see that this is hard and I want to keep going with you. Know one another and do that in each other's lives. And if you're not a member of this church, I hope that you'll be a member of a church where, where you don't just get familiar with Jesus by coming and listening, but you actually grow as a disciple of Jesus among God's people. We have a membership matters class in a few weeks where if you want to join this church, you can. If you don't want to join this church, let me connect you to another church. 
We just want you to grow. We, we don't care that this church grows. We want God's kingdom to grow. And you can go get fed in a hundred other places. That's why we even pray for other churches in our service. Now, that, that's the caution for insiders. For those who are familiar with Jesus, don't grow proud. Don't let your familiarity with him breed contempt like it does in Nazareth. Be humbled. Be mindful of your constant need of God's grace. But then if, if that is not you, if you are a visitor here and church is not a comfortable place, church is not the place where you're like, you come in, you know the liturgy, you know how it works, it feels different, everybody else is singing the songs like we know the words, we don't know the words, they're on the screen, we're just singing them along with you. But, but maybe it feels uncomfortable and here's the good news, if you feel like an outsider, the invitation from Jesus is to come close, come inside, know him. The Bible is not just a book that is given to a small group of people in the first century Palestine saying, here's how you can kind of hole up and have this perfect group. The Bible is an explosion out of how God has orchestrated all of history so that people from every nation and tribe and socioeconomic background and ethnicity, whatever kind of measure of diversity you can think of, those on the outside can be brought in. And the truth is that all of us, at one point, were outsiders. That none of us have a right to God's grace. But that God in mercy, even through the rejection of Jesus, he went to those who are on outside. He went to you and to me to bring people in. So do you see why this story is put up front in Jesus' ministry? It is the banner over the rest of Luke and Acts. Jesus comes to his own people and they reject him. And that rejection is actually so hostile that in Nazareth they seek to kill him. And the book continues on and you're going to see that pattern not just stay small but actually grow so that ultimately he will be rejected to the point of death. They were, they were unsuccessful of throwing him down from the cliff in Nazareth. One day on a hill outside of Jerusalem, they will be successful. And Jesus will experience the ultimate rejection as a Roman governor is convinced to have Jesus crucified. But what is the pattern that we see that happens in rejected prophets? When they are rejected, they are not done. And they continue with their mission. And that's exactly what Jesus does again. Three days after his ultimate rejection, he rises again and starts his ministry of going out. And what you see happen, not just throughout the book of Luke, but as we go into the book of Acts, where you see the sequel is, you see this explode out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and down to the very ends of the earth. To here. To, to Birmingham. To Kaaba Heights. And here we are, the, the true prophet, once rejected, has spread his good news throughout the ages, throughout the nations, all the way down to you. And so the question comes, what then will you, what will you do with this prophet? Will you reject him? Will you have him for your own? Let me pray for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us see and savor Jesus Christ, the true prophet, the one whose word has all authority and power, and the one who has authority to lay his, down, his life down for sinners and take it up again. 
And Lord, even as we go, would you propel your message out to those who right now feel like outsiders? And would you draw them to yourself? We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.